As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. You were tyrannical, treated that young man with exceeding injustice. You bound the garrote about his neck and punished him by taking his life. Knowing that compassion is part of the faith, you did not fear God. What has the merciless monarch of the world done to Sultan Mustafa? You allowed the words of a Russian witch into your ears. Deluded by tricks and deceit, you did the bidding of that spiteful hag. You slaughtered that swaying cypress, the fruit of life's orchard. What has the compassionless monarch of the world done to Sultan Mustafa? You are lord of the world, yet the people now hold you in contempt. No one is inclined to have sympathy towards you any more. And may God's mercy never reach the muftin who approve this. What has the merciless monarch of the world done to Sultan Mustafa? When you were young, you acted with equity and justice. In every circumstance, you gladden the hearts of one and all. So why, in your maturity, do you now act with tyranny and injustice? What has the compassionless monarch of the world done to Sultan Mustafa? Eulogy on the Death of Prince Mustafa by Nisai. Date unknown. Hello, and welcome to The Other Half. Episode 5.8, Roxelana, A Tale of Two Princes. Last time, Roxelana outmaneuvered her rival, Mahidevran, and outlasted her mother-in-law to become the most powerful woman in the Ottoman Empire. Moving into the new palace, the seat of government, she established a power base staffed almost entirely by women. She built mosques, pilgrim hospitals, and soup kitchens across the empire, all with her name attached, the first time this had ever happened in Ottoman history. Politics in Istanbul was a blood sport, and everything Roxlana did was an aid of ensuring that her son would succeed to the throne, and that she and the rest of her children would survive after her husband died. This prime imperative reached even greater levels of importance in the latter years of Suleiman's reign, meaning that Roxlana would have to go to even more extraordinary lengths to protect herself and her family. 
This will be the third and final part of Roxalana's story, and I hope you've been enjoying it as much as I have in researching it. But all this research requires time and money, and this is only possible thanks to the support of my amazing patrons on Patreon. Thanks to their generous support, this show will remain free for everyone forever. If you would like to join their ranks, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter, where we post maps, pictures, and other bonus content from the episode. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Roxelana was a political actor, a figure of more significant influence than any other woman in Ottoman history to that point. But this did not mean that she neglected her maternal obligations. Indeed, everything she did was to ensure her children's success and survival. Most Ottoman consorts only had one son with the sultan, and then spent the rest of their lives preparing and protecting them. Roxelana, by contrast, had four sons, five children in total, that survived to adulthood. These were her eldest son, Mehmed, her only daughter, Miruma, and then three further sons, Selim, Beyazid, and Jehungir. Usually when the sultan's sons came of age, they would be sent, with their mothers, to the provinces, where they would rule as a governor, give them vital experience in rulership. Suleiman himself had earned his stripes as a governor in Crimea, aged only 15, and his only other son, Mustafa, was doing the same in Manisa. Roxalana's sons, however, much like their mother, were breaking with tradition by remaining in Istanbul. They didn't lead entirely sheltered lives. Mehmed and Selim regularly accompanied their father on campaign and received educations heavy on politics, history and soldiering. Mehmed had gained some experience too in governing the capital while his father was away, but the fact remains that the princes did not follow the traditional path to the provinces. This caused some frustration among the ranks of the nobility that would have expected to staff the administrations of these princes. Equally important was the issue of Roxalana's daughter's marriage. While Western princesses were generally married off to foreign rulers, the daughters of sultans tended to marry within the empire, typically to high-ranking nobles in favour with their father. Behruma would be no exception to this, being matched with Rustem Pasha, a high-ranking official that had risen through the ranks of the Ottoman government. He had previously served as governor of Anatolia, one of the most prestigious provinces available, and following his marriage to Mehruma would become the Grand Vizier. This was a political match, and far from a loved one. He was about twice her age, and not exactly a looker, apparently very short and red-faced. But while Roxelana and Maruma both had reservations, the wedding went ahead. While the ceremony itself was a typically muted affair, it would be celebrated as part of a giant festival that also marked her brother's circumcision. 
Crowds gather to celebrate these significant milestones in the lives of their princes and princesses. There were lavish gifts, street parties, and mock battles held in the Hippodrome, where the whole imperial family was in attendance. Roxolana was not only interested in her daughter's prospects either. She had graduated from the harem system and kept a close eye on new enslaved women arriving at the palace, looking for those with enough talent to enter her administration. She poached quite a few from her husband and would reward their service with marriage to other promising officials. This would often see them live in some comfort and eventually gain their freedom. I don't want to over-egg this particular pudding. We're talking about slavery here, of course. But Roxolana took her responsibilities to these women seriously and did make their lives better than they may otherwise have been. Indeed, some of them became the wives of viziers and governors and they would not forget the generosity of their patroness. Moving a little further afield, in the 1540s, the Ottoman Empire got involved in the rivalry between Habsburg Spain and France and sought to expand its territory deeper westwards. In 1541, an army led by Suleiman and his sons and son-in-law, Rustem Pasha, took Buda and Pest in Hungary. And it is in Hungary that we have some of the clearest evidence of Roxolana's involvement in diplomacy. To simplify an incredibly complex situation, Hungary was ruled by a king that was a vassal of the Ottoman Empire. That king was a literal baby, less than a year old, which meant that real power there lay with his mother, Queen Isabella. In 1542, Isabella wrote to Suleiman in support of two nobles that had been imprisoned, but instead of getting a response from the Sultan, she received one from Roxolana. In it, she announced that she was taking both Isabella and her son under her protection, and emphasised a kind of female solidarity. This is something we've seen quite a lot of in Roxolana's reign. She was always keen to promote women and give them opportunities denied to them previously. She opened the letter, quote, Dearest daughter, we are both created from the one mother, Eve, and created from the same matter. We both serve the same man. I am the person most close to the Sultan, and you are the true queen of Hungary. She also got involved in the marriage of Isabella's brother, Sigismund Augustus. He had long been betrothed to a Habsburg princess, and that would not do at all. Roxolana knew that his mother, Bona Sforza, the Queen of Poland and niece of our old friend Katerina Sforza, was opposed to the match. She discreetly sent an envoy to Bonner, informing her that she had Roxolana's full support. While Bonner was eventually outmaneuvered and Sigismund would marry the Habsburg princess, I really do love the idea of this secret network of queens. It's yet another example of Roxolana using her womanhood as a way of supporting her husband's policies while also engaging in a bit of female solidarity. And in this, Roxolana began a brand new pattern of Ottoman sultanas networking abroad. As we'll later discuss, she was the founder of what became known as the Sultanate of Women, a run of powerful sultanas that had tremendous influence over Ottoman politics. And one of the principal ways they did so was through their international relationships. Indeed, her successors would cultivate contacts with the likes of Catherine de Medici and Elizabeth I of England. And she was also training her daughter to do the very same. Remember that Meruma was married to the Grand Vizier, Rustem Pasha, and Roxolana was keen that her daughter would be as valuable to her husband's diplomatic efforts as she had been to hers. One example of mother and daughter working together was in their relationship with the King of Poland. 
This was Roxelana's homeland, and she was keen that peace would reign between her ancestral and adoptive homes. They were both frequent correspondents, and more or less ran relations between the two countries. Also in the early 1540s, Roxelana's eldest sons finally flew the nest and took up gubernatorial posts, with Mehmed going to Manisa, replacing his half-brother Mustafa who went to Amasya, while Salim moved to Karaman. But while Mustafa had his mother, Mahidevran, to help guide him, Mehmed and Salim would not have their mother with them. This was a unique situation at this time. It was the very reason why Ottoman consorts typically only had one son. Many might have expected Roxelana to go with one of them, but she saw her place as being in Istanbul. She had other children to support, most notably her youngest, Jahangir, who was disabled. But there was also another issue. Which son would she go with if she did go? Mehmed would be the obvious choice. He was the eldest, after all. But Selim had a much more difficult gig than his brother. His city was further away from the capital, and has not had a royal governor in quite some time. He would have to set up a new administration pretty much from scratch, and some maternal help would have been greatly appreciated. By going with neither son, Roxelana was breaking with yet another tradition. Then again, by then, she'd done this so many times, I can't imagine many were all that surprised. With her eldest sons away, when Suleiman was away from the capital, Roxelana was more or less unchallenged as the royal family's senior presence in the palace. That's not to say that she just waved them off and let them sink or swim. Less than a year after they left, she brought her younger sons to visit both Mehmed and Selim in their respective provincial capitals. These were not just trips to see her children, they were also opportunities to show off her majesty to the people of Anatolia. In a time for newspapers and newsreels, the best way to show your face to the people was to literally appear before them. She would turn up in all her finery, every inch the great sultan's wife, and attend events and receptions in every major town she passed, showing an interest in the lives of her people. She visited mosques, prayed at religious shrines, basically everything you'd expect a queen or sultana to do. It was all very choreographed and calculated, but nonetheless effective. However, she had not long left her eldest son Mehmed's side when she heard some terrible news. A smallpox epidemic had hit Manisa, and its governor had not been spared. He had contracted the disease, and six days later, he was dead. Suleiman's grief at the death of his son would rival that of Queen Victoria following Prince Albert's passing. The sources say he publicly cried at his funeral for two straight hours. One ambassador diplomatically put it that he, quote, exhibited his sorrow and appeared in public dressed in black to signal his pain. The whole court was plunged into mourning, with prayers for his departed soul extending to 40 days instead of the usual three. He was inconsolable. We know this. What we don't know is Roxelana's reaction, which is intensely frustrating. But we can make an educated guess. She was devoted to her children. Everything she did was for their protection and advancement. She'd kept Mehmed under her wing for a long time before sending him off to his provincial placement. And he had not survived. 
It's hard to imagine her not greatly mourning him, perhaps as intensely as her husband, if not as publicly. Women were not permitted to attend public funerals. She wouldn't even have that. The one silver lining, the one comfort, was that Mehmed's death quelled Suleiman's desire to go to war. For nearly five years, he would remain in Istanbul by his wife's side, the longest period in his reign to that point. One of their major projects together would be a mosque to commemorate their late son. Called the Shezade Mosque, or the Mosque of the Prince, it was built on Istanbul's third hill, and was on a grand scale. Never before had a prince been honoured with such a magnificent monument. The Venetian ambassador noted, quote, The Sultan and the Prince's mother wanted to honour him with a most beautiful and sumptuous mosque. While the historian, Mustafa Ali, who never has a good word to say about Roxelana, noted that it was a fitting tribute, stemming from the unbridled love that Mehmed's, quote, fortune-favoured mother and illustrious father felt for him in their hearts. The loss of a son can be the most challenging moment in any relationship. The grief and the pain can prise open the tiniest of cracks, which, if left to fester, can break the most secure of bonds. This did not happen with Roxelana and Suleiman. This would be the longest period they would be in the same place for their entire marriage at that point, and their relationship endured as strongly as ever. They were both older now, well into middle age. The driving sexual passion that had fueled their early relationship had now likely transformed into something new, something calmer, but perhaps even more substantial. Suleiman too was suffering from various illnesses in particular gout and edema. He describes in a letter a pain so bad he could not walk or hunt, while Roxelana's replies are full of tender love, affection and concern. He would recover from these maladies, changing his diet and regimen to become more healthy, and Roxelana supported him through it all. But there was one potential fly in the ointment, future trouble in their paradise that could rupture it, the succession. In 1546, Bayezid left the palace to take up a governorship in Anatolia, meaning that, once again, three of Suleiman's sons had come of age and were preparing themselves for a future as sultan. Remember that, in the Ottoman system, there was no presumption of primogeniture. There was no guarantee at all that the eldest son would inherit. Sultans like Suleiman were supposed to create a level playing field for their heirs while their mothers were supposed to promote and repair them. They would be loyal to the sultan, but also to their son. But of course, this whole system had been upset by Roxelana, who had stacked the deck in her favour, but still found herself in a bide for which there was no precedent. Was she in the same position as Suleiman? Would she have to remain neutral? Or would she find herself in that trickiest of positions for a parent, having to choose between her two of-age sons? Salim and Bayezid. Her rival, Mahidevran, had no such concerns. She had one son, one focus, and had years to prepare Mustafa for the challenge ahead. Roxelana had had the field to herself for decades, but her husband's eldest son and first paramour were playing the long game, and with the sultan beginning to ail, their time could well be now. In 1553, tensions on the Ottoman-Persian border erupted into war once again. Persian soldiers had invaded Suleiman's territory, and their target was Amasya, which, at the time, was commanded by Mustafa. 
This was his chance to make a name for himself, for Mustafa, son of Suleiman, to show his quality. Elements within the Ottoman army were beginning to mutter. They were looking to the future, and what they saw was an old sultan who was not at present willing to lead his soldiers into battle, and a vigorous young potential heir they could get behind. One ambassador in Istanbul wrote that, quote, One cannot describe how much Mustafa is loved and desired by all in the empire to succeed. There is no Turk or slave of the Sultan that does not have the same opinion or desire. Because in addition to primogeniture, which should rightfully give him the empire, his reputation as courageous, generous and fair makes everybody yearn for him. Rustem Pasha, who was in command of the army, recognised this threat and urgently wrote to the Sultan. He told him he had to get himself to the front line and take control of the army personally before it was too late, before his son betrayed him and committed treason. At first, Suleiman refused to believe what his grand vizier was telling him. He wrote to Rustem, quote, God forbid that my Mustafa Khan should dare such insolence, and for the love of the Sultanate during my lifetime should extend his foot from the quilt. It must be the ideas of some troublemakers, they slander him in order to obtain the rule for the prince they support. What happened next is possibly the most controversial moment in Suleiman's storied reign. The Sultan summoned his son to the city of Konya. His mother begged him not to go. His advisers strongly urged him to stay away. An arrow was even fired into his camp with a note warning him about what was to happen. But Mustafa ignored them all. He didn't think it possible that his father could mean him harm. His sultan had given him an order. He had to follow it. Mustafa arrived at his father's camp on horseback. He was accompanied by guards, but he ordered them to stay outside. As he entered the sultan's tent, he was immediately set upon by a group of assailants, who did a, frankly, rather ramshackle job of murder. Even with the advantage of numbers and surprise, it took them quite a long time to overpower and kill Mustafa. They were more efficient with his young son, who was also tracked down and killed. The reaction to this double murder was immediate outrage. Mustafa had been popular, and the finger of blame was pointed squarely at the Grand Vizier. The mob bayed for his head, but Suleiman refused, instead electing to merely send him into a comfortable retirement. But while Rustem Pasha was certainly the villain of the piece, it was clear to anyone with half a brain that he did not do this alone. Clearly this had been a hit ordered from the top. But blaming the Sultan was a dangerous business. It was far safer to denounce his wife. Thus, to generations of writers, Roxolana has become the archetypal evil stepmother. A straight line was drawn between her ousting of Mahadevran from the harem to the murder of her son. A scheme decades in the planning. She schemed with her son-in-law to dupe her husband into thinking that his eldest son was a traitor. She tricked him out of jealousy and fear. It is a tempting theory, When looking at a mystery, it's always helpful to ask qui bono? Who benefits? Who had the most to gain? Removing Mustafa from the board would leave it entirely open for her sons to inherit, and thus ensure her own personal safety. But this ignores one thing. The agency of the Sultan. He had every reason to fear his son, who had been on manoeuvres and was raising support. 
Ottoman sultans had little compunction in killing members of their own family. It's often how they came to the throne, and even more often, how they stayed there. Roxelana may well have played her part, and she would not have shed a tear at her stepson's death, but her husband and son-in-law played a far more significant role in Mustafa's death than she. But this was not the view at the time. At the start of the episode, I read a contemporary poem written by the female writer Nisai. Quote, you allowed the words of a Russian witch into your ears. Deluded by tricks and deceit, you did the bidding of that spiteful hag. You slaughtered that swaying cypress, the fruit of life's orchard. What has the compassionless monarch of the world done to Sultan Mustafa? In his last remaining years, Roxana would act as a lightning rod for her husband. It was far more easier to blame her for everything that went wrong than he. This murderous act fired a starting gun on the disintegration of the imperial family. Not long after, Roxelana's youngest son, Jahangir, died at the age of 21. He had been much loved in the family, an innocent in a house full of daggers. This meant that she had only two remaining sons, and it was clear they were destined to become rivals. Only one of them could become sultan, and the other would likely not survive. Roxelana had two options. She could get behind one of her sons, condemning the other to certain death, or do her best to try and maintain some sort of equilibrium between them. She elected to take the latter, much more challenging, course. It was not up to her or her husband which of her sons inherited. It was in God's hands. Her elder son, Salim, was in the driving seat. He was more experienced, and had been steadfastly loyal to Suleiman, while Bayezid had indicated some support for Mustafa before he died. For Suleiman, his main priority was ensuring that he lived out the rest of his life as God intended, not have it end due to the drip of a poisonous vial or the blade of an assassin's sword. What happened after his natural death was not his concern. Stability was the key. He had already killed one son, and was willing to do it again. Thus, Roxelana was caught in yet another bind. Between her loyalty to her husband, and her desire to see her sons both, you know, live. This was tested in 1556, when Bayezid failed to put down an uprising in his territory, and was reportedly considering joining it and marching on Istanbul at the head of a rebel army. This did not happen, but the report made its way to Suleiman. He was furious, but was reportedly brought down from the brink of murderous reprisal by his wife. One ambassador wrote that Roxelana, quote, with her usual cleverness, easily read his thoughts. Letting a few days lapse in order that his wrath might be calmed down, she touched upon the subject in the Sultan's presence. She went on to say that she told him that everyone makes mistakes, and that Bayezid had been lured into a conspiracy by evil advisers. Quote, it was only fair, she said, to pardon a first offence, and if his son amended his ways, his father would gain much by sparing his son's life. The dialogue there is likely imagined, but the result is beyond question. Bayezid survived, and he had his mother to thank for it. But he would not have her protection for much longer. In the second half of the 1550s, Roxelana's health significantly deteriorated. We're not sure precisely what ailed her, but we know that she did not travel much in later years, spending much of her time surrounded by doctors. 
On the 15th of April, 1558, Roxolana died, reportedly of malaria and colic. Her death was expected, and her remaining days had been spent with her husband, her partner of many decades, the love of her life. Her death broke his heart. The peace between brothers that she had fought so hard for in her final days would end not long after. Bayezid would rise in rebellion against his father and brother. His effort failed, and he was executed in 1562. But while Roxlana's death did lead to some short-term turmoil, her example would have long-standing, stabilising effects. From her son Salim, who would become sultan onwards, her successors as consorts or sultanas established a pattern of powerful women at the heart of the Ottoman court. Selim was not monogamous like his father had been with Roxolana, but he had a favourite consort, Nurbanu. Her talents had already been recognised by Roxolana, who had tutored her, and she would exert tremendous influence both as the wife of the sultan and as the mother of his successor, Murad. Roxolana had not lived to see her son inherit, but her successors would pay an important role in ensuring that their sons would do so. Nabani made sure that Murad took the throne, and the same thing happened with his wife, and onwards for the next century or so. This was the Sultanate of Women. The power of these women was not unopposed, but they all had an example to follow. The Sultan's mother had always held an exalted position, but never before had it had so much political power. Roxolana had blazed a trail, and it would be followed by generations of women after her. <laughs>